Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, including yours. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. Up next, a story from our regular contributor, Ann Clare. Ann is a teacher, organist, and choir director. She's also a World War II history buff. You can find her stories at the thenaptimeauthor.wordpress.com. Up next, a story on the Bremerton Naval Yards in Washington. Here's Anne to tell the story. On October 30th, 1940, Franklin Delano Roosevelt made a campaign speech in Boston in which he said, I have said this before, but I shall say it again and again and again. Your boys are not going to be sent into any foreign war. Of course, with hindsight, we know that didn't last more than a year because... We interrupt this broadcast and bring you this important bulletin from the United Press. Flash, Washington. The White House announces Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. However you look at it, this was a huge change, a huge impactful event in American history. It had a profound impact on really everybody in the country, but in different places it hit differently. One place that had a really 
interesting historical connection with the whole Pearl Harbor attack and with the way World War II would change the U.S. is the town of Bremerton in the state of Washington. Now, Bremerton's not a big metropolis. In fact, it largely grew because of some Navy connections. It's across Puget Sound from Seattle. It's on the Kitsap Peninsula, which is a little peninsula sticking out from the larger Olympic Peninsula. And since it's on Puget Sound, it does have access to the Pacific Ocean, which is why in 1891, it was picked to be the site for the Puget Sound Naval Station, which was the first naval establishment in the Northwest, which was a pretty big deal because at that point, if U.S. ships needed major work, they would have to go all the way down to Mare Island in California, or they'd have to go all the way up to British Columbia. So this gave a facility where American ships could be tended on American soil. Now, over the years, the yard grew and changed significantly. Back in 1928, it had work on the very first U.S. aircraft carriers, the Saratoga and the Lexington. Actually, the Saratoga spent enough time in Puget Sound that eventually it got the nickname Sarah from the workers there. And as the fleet was authorized to build up by Congress in 1934, there was more work again in the yard for the people who were there. On the invasion of Poland in 1939, FDR declared a limited national emergency and they dug more dry docks for ships and expanded the ones that were there and began preparing to be able to build ships themselves. They also became involved in something called deperming. See, once Germany went to war with Britain, Germany started mining British shipping lanes, and they'd used magnetized mines, which of course is a problem for any ship that's going through those areas. So one of the jobs that was done in the shipyard area was creating these big electromagnetic coils that would actually demagnetize the hulls of ships so they wouldn't attract mines, ideally. Also, the battleships of the U.S. Pacific Fleet were getting overhauled and repaired during this time, which kept about 6,000 employees very busy. Now, the first real look at war that Bremerton got, the first first-hand look, as it were, was actually through a foreign visitor. The Yard hosted the HMS Warspite in the summer of 1941. This British ship had been pretty badly beaten up in the Mediterranean and had limped its way across the Pacific to Bremerton, which was kind of exciting for the citizens. They got to host these British sailors and a lot of them invited them into their homes and tried to show them hospitality and were naturally also very curious about the ship, though the war spike kept up pretty strong security, even stronger than the shipyard itself had had in past days because times were changing. But still, even though it was a look at war, a look at people who'd experienced it, war still felt fairly far away until December. December 7th in Bremerton is, according to memories of people who were there, a pretty nice day for December in the Pacific Northwest. People were working on houses, coming home from church, out and about with friends, going to their jobs, when word came through that Pearl Harbor had been hit. And unlike some different parts of the country that were farther away from Hawaii, Pearl Harbor was not an entirely unfamiliar name to the people in Bremerton. And it was a bit of a shock, because while Hawaii, mileage-wise, is still a good distance away, just geographically, it felt uncomfortably like, uh, <laughs> I guess you could say, like a neighbor had been hit. And they wondered, the people of the area wondered if they might be next in line. Bremerton, the yard, is where the damaged ships would come. They had the facility, the only place on the West Coast, really, that would be able to repair any damaged battleships. So as soon as word came out that Pearl had been hit, People started looking to the skies. They were concerned. 
And you're listening to Ann Claire, who's a teacher, an organist, and a choir director, but she's also one heck of a World War II expert and buff. When we come back, more of this remarkable story of Bremerton Naval Yards. These kinds of stories happened all around this country as the arsenal of democracy was put into high gear. More of this remarkable story, Ann Claire telling the story of Bremerton Naval Yards here on Our American Story. Folks, if you love the stories we tell about this great country, and especially the stories of America's rich past, know that all of our stories about American history, from war to innovation, culture, and faith, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, a place where students study all the things that are beautiful in life and all the things that are good in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu to learn more. And we return to Our American Stories and the story of the Bremerton Naval Yards with Anne Claire. When we last left off, the people of Bremerton, Washington, where the Bremerton Naval Yard sits, had just found out that Pearl Harbor had been hit, and big changes to this town were imminent. Here again is Anne Claire to tell the rest of the story. There were a lot of changes. People tell stories of changes in the ferry routes because back in those days, just like now, there were ferries back and forth from Bremerton to Seattle quite frequently. Uh, One person wrote about hearing shots while he was riding the ferry home and walking out to see a rifleman standing on the front of the boat firing into the water because, well, if there were mines in Puget Sound, he hoped that they'd get detonated. The war spite, which was still docked in the yard, was turned around to face seaward, and every afternoon, 4 p.m., it would be disconnected from all of the lines that connected it to the land and all buttoned up just in case they had to go into some sort of combat situation. They started parking barges in front of the different dry docks to try and put up some sort of barrier to protect the ships that were being repaired. Barrels of water and boxes of sand and rakes were put up around the shipyard. Tape crisscrosses were put on windows just in case blasts might blow out the glass. And people started looking for ways to create air raid shelters as well. Uh, There were basements of some buildings that would serve, but also, just in case people couldn't get to them in time, old ship boilers were brought out and cut in half (laughs) to make uh, sort of dome-shaped shelters that, at least according to the signs on them, could get 30 people inside and give them some sort of protection in case the bombs started falling. It was just... Lots and lots of planning in a short time as everyone tried to figure out what we'd do if the Japanese came, if the invasion happened. The invasion by the Japanese, of course, we know, did not come to Washington state. (laughs) The invasion that did come was of the U.S. Army, actually. A week after Pearl Harbor on December 14th, lots of army trucks started rolling into Bremerton, which was quite another big change for this Navy town. And tents cropped up in play fields and in parks and soldiers were sleeping in people's barns or garages or finding lodging in different houses and filled up a lot of the space. And that was also amplified a couple of weeks later when the 303rd Barrage Balloon Battalion rolled into town as well. If you've seen pictures of Britain during World War II, you might have seen pictures of those big silvery balloons floating above London or at the beaches also when we were uh, doing different invasions in Europe and things. Barrage balloons were designed in Britain. These ones were actually created in the U.S. And the idea was that these balloons with the long steel cables coming down from them would actually stop planes from dive bombing, or if planes tried to dive bomb, the cables could shear off the wings of the planes and it would provide protection 
to the ground area. So Bremerton was full of barrage balloons. Wherever they could find a good open space to plant one, they planted one. But the barrage balloons were an interesting addition to the town. They also caused some problems because if a high wind came up and they weren't able to bring the barrage balloons down in time, uh, they might snap their cables and go flying off. There's quite a few stories of barrage balloon cables taking out chimneys or power lines. And since the barrage balloons also were flammable, there was one unfortunate incident in 1943 where one actually blew on the ground and injured seven soldiers who were taking care of it, one of them critically. So all these precautions, all of these different things to protect Bremerton were changing the whole landscape of life in this town. Add to that fact the fact that the shipyard itself was trying to amp up its number of employees because there was a lot of work coming in. The town itself was getting so full that there's stories from people working at the YMCA during this time that they'd have to just go and set up cots on the gym floor 100 cots in the gym and they'd all be rented out. They'd have people actually reserving seats just for a place to sleep and a place to keep their belongings while they were looking for more permanent lodgings. Putting the cover on the pool table at night and having a couple guys jump up on there and use that as a bed. I heard stories of hotels actually renting out one bed to three different people and one person would be working the first shift and then they'd go off to work and then the next person would come and sleep and they'd have the next shift and they'd go off to work and then the next person could use the bed while they were off of work. As the shipyard was looking for workers, they just couldn't seem to fill the slots quickly enough no matter how full the town was getting. And so teenagers in town were recruited too for different jobs, which worked out kind of well because the city was so crowded that the schools couldn't actually hold all of their students at one time. So the students were going to school, in the public schools at least, in two shifts. Half of the students went in the morning, half went in the afternoon. So there was a certain amount of time for outside employment as well for the kids, and it was a very, a very busy time for everybody. The yard was keeping busy with a lot of different projects, of course. There was shipbuilding and there was refitting other things. But two days before the end of 1941, the first Pearl Harbor ghost arrived in the yard, and that was a pretty significant event. The ship, this ghost ship, wasn't really a ghost, but Japan had reported that five U.S. battleships were sunk during the attack on Pearl Harbor, which actually the U.S. was able to salvage, get back to Bremerton repair, and put back into the fight. The first of these ghosts, as they were jokingly named since the ships had been declared dead and now were back out and about, was the USS Tennessee. And it was sailing under its own power, even though it had been battered by bomb hits and also by debris from the USS Arizona's explosion. The next day, December 30th, the USS Maryland made it into port as well. The shipyard took a break from lots of other projects and put people to work on it because we desperately needed ships in the Pacific. And they were actually able to turn those ships around, get them repaired, and get them ready to fight and upgraded as well in just 53 days. The Maryland and the Tennessee had sailed back out. In February, the Saratoga, the aircraft carrier, was back at the shipyard too because it had been hit by a torpedo, not during Pearl Harbor, but on January 11th. And then by May 1st, the third Pearl Harbor ghost, the USS Nevada, had made it to the shipyard. Just to give some perspective on the level of damage on these ships, it took about 700,000 man-hours to get the Nevada ready to go into the fight again. The last two Pearl Harbor ghosts to show up were the USS California and the USS West Virginia. They'd been damaged the most and they had been sunk and flooded and full of silty soil and, and needed quite a lot of work. But eventually they were all turned back into the fight. And these five ships were not at all the, the only ones that the yard worked on during World War II. All these workers and all these employees coming in and teaming up to work together to repair and equip these ships did a tremendous job. There were about 32,500 
employees in this workforce. And during the World War II period, they built 50 new ships and repaired 363, which was a pretty, a pretty tremendous aid to the American war effort. And a special thanks to Monty Montgomery for the production on that piece. And a special thanks to Anne Clare, who's a teacher, an organist, and a choir director, but she's also a World War II history buff. And we love having our World War II and history contributors be from all walks of life. You don't have to have a PhD in history to know history or tell stories about it. And my goodness, 50 new ships. That's a crazy number of ships, folks. The story, in a way, of the arsenal of democracy, the story of Bremerton Naval Yard, here on Our American Story. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. And we continue with our American stories. And up next, we're going to hear from Donna Howard tell the story of her daughter, Cassie, who as a teenager was met with a diagnosis that changed her life. You'll find out where that diagnosis has led Donna to today, to a place where she can help not only her daughter, Cassie, but others under similar circumstances, and all while shedding light on an illness that had kept them in the dark for so many years. I was director of radiology at a hospital here in Mississippi for many, many years. I moved to Arkansas, got married, had three children. And uh, in 1990, Cassie became ill on her 14th birthday. It was a Sunday afternoon. I remember it very well. She came in the kitchen that day and said, the new kids on the block are singing happy birthday to me through the air conditioner. And that was an aha moment. I began to think back, and she had been telling me things, and I had not paid attention. I say this, and I don't think people really understand when I say she didn't sleep till she was five years old. And I think now, was she hearing the voices, and that was normal to her? But there were many, many nights we didn't sleep. So um, I called the pediatrician, and I said, we need to talk to you. And so we met him at the emergency room, and... After about an hour of him and her talking, he came out and he said, she's got some serious, serious issues. She was in and out of hospitals. Then it took a long time to get a diagnosis because a lot of doctors didn't know a lot about schizophrenia. It took us a year. We went out to UCLA to the Neuropsychiatric Institute, and that's where we got our diagnosis of chronic paranoid schizophrenia at age 15. She was having such a hard time that year that I don't think it really resonated with her what chronic paranoid schizophrenia was. She just knew she was she was hearing these voices that were very real to her. It was very scary for her. It was hard to find anybody to treat her. Uh, it was just a nightmare because I couldn't get any help and I couldn't find any peace for her. And I, I also had two other children at home. She went to school until she was in the 10th grade. And I finally took her out because here she was, a quiet, shy little girl sitting over in the corner crying. So uh, after six months of them calling me every day, you know, we don't know what to do with her. I finally took her out of school. So I had to stay home and take care of her and educate myself on what to expect and how to handle what we were going through. It was an extremely difficult time because you, you didn't talk about it. My family wouldn't talk to me about it. They didn't really understand it. And that's when we decided she needed to get a job that that might help. And we tried many jobs. And I even paid one place to let her work there. I paid them just to let her come in and clean their equipment just so she'd have something to do. Uh, Then she got a job and worked at this grocery store, but the people were not kind to her. They didn't understand her. She was 20 years old. She looked like she should be able to act like a grown woman and make decisions, and she couldn't. And every day she would come home, I hate my job, I hate my job. You know, I don't want to do this. So I was in Nashville shopping with my sister-in-law, and we went into a thrift store, and we got to talking to the owner, and he had opened it to give his daughter a job because she had autism. And we walked out the door, and my sister-in-law looked at me and said, you're going to do that, aren't you? It took me four years. I retired, then I put what retirement money I had into it, and I opened the store here in Oxford to employ persons living with mental illness in a safe work environment in hopes of helping them achieve independence and self-respect. Cassie was thrilled. She was very excited that she wasn't gonna have to work at the grocery store anymore. We started out with two employees. I had started getting donations before I opened the store, and so we had a few things, not a lot, but uh, the first day we opened, a lady stole from me the very first day. (laughs) And uh, I'm like, oh my gosh, I hadn't thought about that. Everything we sell is donated. We don't buy anything. We have to depend on the people in the community to donate. 
there were lots of paydays on Thursday night. I'd say, Lord, please put the money in the bank because payday's tomorrow and I don't have it. And we always managed to make payroll. I always didn't get paid, but we always managed to pay the employees. It was a real learning process. We really just struggled financially just to get by and keep our doors open. But when the pandemic hit, people were home cleaning out their closets and their attics and their garages. Cassie and I and my niece worked at the store every day just to keep the donations out of the parking lot because people were bringing them in like crazy. Not only did we get all the donations, people learned about us that didn't know about us before. And since then, we're doing really well. Today, we have about 15 employees. It's very rewarding. Most of my employees have been there a long time. I have one young man that's worked with me ever since we opened. He and Cassie were friends when we opened, and they love working there. They do a good job, but it's like a new day every day because just because you told somebody that those go in the floral section one day, the next day you have to tell them again. Sometimes my customers will mistake my employees for being rude, and I'll pull them aside and I'll explain the situation. You know, here's our brochure, this is what we're about. And most of the time, they're very understanding, and then they're apologetic. But we do have people that are just downright rude, and I just say, we are here to give these people a safe work environment where they can feel comfortable, and it's not tolerated, because all we want is to be loved and to be treated with kindness. That's, That's it. They work very hard. Several of them, I have to say, okay, you need to sit down and take a break, because they work hard. The joke around the store is some days when we would be overwhelmed, my niece, who has helped me from the beginning, she would say, would you please quit praying for furniture? Because God always supplies. I knew when I walked out that door in Nashville that that's what he wanted me to do. I didn't have any idea how I was gonna do it. I had been through so much with Cassie being sick and not being able to work at times, but we never went hungry and we never did without. So I have a pretty strong faith and I knew that through this he would provide, and he, he has. It's pretty awesome. A dream is open more stores in more cities to help more people because, I mean, I don't know what Cassie would do, and I don't know what the other kids, and I call them kids, they're not kids, they're young adults, but I don't know what they would do if they didn't have a place to go to. I have a young man that came to me. At the time, he couldn't count change. And his confidence just grew and grew as he worked for me. And um, now he has moved out of his mother's home, has moved to Nashville, and is working at a store. And uh, he's assistant manager. And it just thrills me because look what he's done. And had he sat at home and not done anything, it would have been such a waste. And uh, it's great to be a part of that. I take no credit for this at all. It's a God thing. He's just using me, and I just, I tell Cassie, I said, some good has come from all the heartache and and pain that Cassie's had to go through. And a great job on that piece by Madison. And a special thanks to Donna Howard, the founder of Holding Hands Resale Shop, right here in Oxford, Mississippi. And we tell stories from all around the country And every once in a while, you'll hear stories from right where we live, too. Oxford is a beautiful small town about an hour south of Memphis, Tennessee. And, well, like all communities, we come together when we need to. And my goodness, finding out that your daughter at the age of 14 is diagnosed with chronic paranoid schizophrenia, that's a tough one. And what do you do about it? Well, Donna, well, she taught us all what to do about it. And she learned about it from someone else in Nashville who taught her what to do about it. A beautiful mother-daughter story, Donna Howard's story, her daughter Cassie's story too, here on Our American Stories.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. And we continue with our American stories. Up next, a listener story from Brent Timmons, who listens to us on Spotify in Delaware. Today, Brent shares with us a story called Under My Thumb. Take it away, Brent. 35 years after I'd spent the better part of a summer in Louisville with my Uncle Bud and Aunt Tinka, we sat at her dining room table with my wife, Tina. Our four kids played in the adjacent room. We listened to music from 1969. A black woman, Nina Simone, sang haunting songs about the mistreatment of African-American women in 1960s society. Uncle Bud talked about the glory days of sitting on his front porch 
with Tinka and her friends in the early 70s, discussing how they were going to make the world a better place to live, a world where everyone respected the rights of everyone else. All they would need was love. We talked about Abe Lincoln's depression and how ironic it was that such a depressed man would take on such a depressing job of leading this country through a war, ironically, to attempt to save it. We talked about how he must have laid in bed at night and wept as he thought about Americans killing Americans in an effort to forge a united country. We talked about Tinka crying upon hearing the news of Kent State, learning again about Americans killing Americans in an effort to define themselves as a country. We didn't discuss the things that an 8-year-old and a 31-year-old spoke of during that summer in 1969. We had matured 36 years. I was now 44, Uncle Bud was still going strong at 67, and Tinka, somehow, still a beautiful 29 years of age. We talked about how those 36 years had changed us. We discussed the similarities between 1860, 1960, and 2005 America and the events that shaped our country during those critical years. In each case, someone rose up who was able to clearly articulate ideals held dear to their heart. This very day, we had visited Abraham Lincoln's birthplace. Scrawled everywhere was evidence of a man who could express his heart and mind. How fortunate we were as a nation to have a man who could ponder life and then speak so clearly, so briefly, in the way the average 1860 citizen could understand. Certainly, Martin Luther King was one of those men in 1960. Certainly, this black woman whose songs we were listening to was one of those women. But who were these men and women today? Was it one of us? Was it one of our young children playing out in Tinka's pool? Perhaps a great gene of wisdom passed from my grandfather, through Uncle Bud and my mother, through me, to Asher, and would surface one day in our now two-year-old son. We were right in the middle of listening to Nina sing a song detailing a method of keeping white men from taking advantage of black women, the song which reportedly encouraged Mick Jagger to pursue a life of music, when we were thrust back into the present. As if on cue, practically by the hand of an all-knowing God determined to restore humility to my large head, we heard a cry from the latest little family thinker, Asher. Apparently, he had fallen and cracked his young and still small head on the counter of Tinka's 1950s Art Deco diner-style table. Uncle Bud matter-of-factly asked if we needed to go to the emergency room for stitches. Upon closer inspection, that did not appear to be necessary, but I could see that Tina was not totally convinced and was concerned about scarring. We decided a call to a nurse friend in Delaware would give us more information by which to make a decision. We concluded that butterfly bandages would be adequate for this crisis. The last thing I wanted to do was spend the next six hours in the ER. It was not what I wanted our kids to remember about their trip to visit their Uncle Bud and Aunt Tinka. Uncle Bud and I valiantly volunteered to drive to the pharmacy for the bandages. As I stood before the shelf searching for the butterfly type, I spied a product called Liquid Bandage. Immediately, my great knowledge of Vietnam trivia came to mind. I had heard that superglue was originally invented to mend battlefield cuts during the Vietnam era. I shared my wealth of trivia with Uncle Bud and decided that in addition to the butterfly bandages, we would get some liquid bandage. So we left the store with $9 worth of first aid supplies. We arrived back home at Tinka's and began with surgical precision to repair Asher's cut. The gash was just over his eyebrow. I was concerned about leaking the liquid bandage onto his eye, so I firmly rested my pinky under his eyebrow, which also served to close up the wound, a task which had been suggested by our nurse friends. We carefully applied a little of the liquid and waited the suggested 30 or so seconds for the bandage to set. Our plan was working beautifully. No liquid to the eye, no bleeding, no gaping, no problem. 
As I relaxed and began to loosen my hold on Asher's head, he began to whimper. It was then that I realized a small flaw in the procedure. The directions, which I had carefully read, said that the liquid flowed freely until setting. Indeed, it had flowed from the wound down the entire length of my pinky. My great intellectual ability to anticipate possible effects had paid off. The one small glitch was that my pinky was now affixed to my son's eyebrow. I announced my predicament, and Tina quickly resorted to her faith with an exclamation of, Oh, Lord! I recalled from the directions that some form of oil would release the adhesive, so as calmly as possible, I requested that someone read the box to clarify what the antidote was. Mineral oil or baby oil would do the trick. Tinka had just used up her last of both, but drawing from her culinary experience, did a quick conversion and rushed into the midst of the chaos with olive oil. Fortunately, all but a few drops ended up in the carpet and Asher's hair. I was too busy to look Uncle Bud's way, but he was quiet obviously concluding that this was a situation better left to the parents. I hated the very idea that he had to witness this at all. He had just told me weeks previously that he would never have the audacity to try to tell me how to raise my children. He remained true to that conviction to the nth degree in this situation. As Asher cried and struggled to free his head of my finger, the grip between our flesh began to free, and I could see that an end to the nightmare was in sight. With a little more coaxing, my finger was free, and Asher had a layer of liquid bandage on his small cut. In a short while, he was pretty much back to his old self. We were all older now, and we may have grown in wisdom, but needless to say, we are always in a position of needing more. Our experience may equip us to better handle a situation to handle it in a cooler fashion, to improvise, or to let someone else do what they need to do without interfering or making it worse. And when faced with some things, it sure doesn't hurt just to say, Oh Lord. It is in situations like these that the only thing you can be is yourself. What comes out is what is deeply rooted inside. You don't tell yourself how to act, you just act. And if you have learned anything at all in life, the way you act will be a little more mature than the last time. If only Abe Lincoln could see how his life had inspired Nina Simone to write her songs about freedom, who inspired Mick Jagger to write his songs, and then see me bring a whole new meaning to the song Under My Thumb. Just as we had seen that day that Mr. Lincoln came from humble beginnings and would forever remain humble, God would see to it that I too forever remained humble. I was reminded that the task of passing on a legacy to our son would always involve a balancing act of trying to decide when to keep him under my thumb and when to encourage the separation of our flesh in its proper time. Within a few minutes of this incident, it was obvious that this was a story we would tell and laugh about, eventually. Asher would learn of his battle scar, which he would proudly display and talk about for years to come. It would be a battle scar suffered during the watch of his family while they discussed the fate of the world and how to pass on the values that make us who we are. And a special thanks to Monty Montgomery for the editing and the production on that piece. And a special thanks to Brent Timmons for his work. And he listens to us on Spotify and he lives in the state of Delaware. And my goodness, he's right about that balancing act. And any parent, any human being ultimately has to weigh when to keep people under their thumb and protect them and when to go out on their own. And again, if you have stories, you can tell we love listeners' stories. We stand by that. We love hearing the stories from all over this great country, too. Big cities and small ones, big states, and a little state like Delaware. And I grew up in New Jersey right above it. Brent Timmons' story under my thumb here on Our American Stories.
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.